respect to the people of the Woi Wurrung and Bun Wurrung language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nations on whose unceded lands the SIN office and studios stand. SIN Media respectfully acknowledges their ancestors and elders, past, present and emerging. SIN Media also acknowledges the traditional custodians and their ancestors of the lands and waters across Australia where our content reaches and on which SIN partner organisations stand. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This episode of Raise the Platform discusses mental health and ableism. If you need support after hearing these discussions, please contact one of the following numbers, which are also in the description. You can call Lifeline on 13 11 14, Beyond Blue on 1800 512 348, Kids Helpline on 1800 55 1800, Safe Steps on 1800-015-188 or QLife on 1800-184-527. Hello. Um, today we have Elise and Elise is 27 and uses she, her pronouns. Elise is a youth worker at Youth Disability Advocacy Service in the Young Leaders team where she, said, where she shares her experience with bipolar disorder, and how she has used her lived experience to advocate for herself and others. She's the founder of a charity organisation called Making Noise, which raises awareness and money for women affected by gender-based violence, super passionate about mental health disability rights and consent sexual education, but is also the biggest fan of Beyonce musical theatre. You're passionate about the mental health and of disabled young people. Can you please tell us more about this? Yeah, absolutely. So I will give a content warning about um, mental illness because I'm going to talk about my own journey. Um, so my journey with mental health officially started when I was like 18 or 19. But when I look back, it, the signs that I was like mentally unwell were like there when I was like 13 or 14 years old. But I officially got like a diagnosis of rapid cycling bipolar one at 22. Um, and for those who don't know um, what bipolar one actually is, as there's like heaps of um, harmful misconceptions about it, it's pretty much just like a complex mood disorder that's characterized by intense mood swings and psychotic elements. And my journey is the reason why I'm so passionate about the mental health um, of disabled young people, um, because the vast majority of my early 20s, I would say like 70% of my early 20s was spent in psychiatric facilities. Um, and at that time, so I'm 27 now, but at that time there was some openness about anxiety and depression, um, but there was absolutely no talk about any like kind of mental health diagnoses that included psychotic elements because they were, and they still very much are stigmatised. Um, so there was no guidebook for me and it ended in a lot of self-destruction and self-sabotage and I want to give another content warning for substance abuse and trauma like yeah. um, I want to give a content warning for um, substance abuse and trauma um, I use absolutely anything that I could to numb my pain including being in drug addiction for five years which I'm now two years clean from um, and experiencing traumatic things which I like did to myself and I was the victim of and I'm not saying this for anyone to kind of pity me, but 
that was my reality and that's the reality of so many other young people. But I guess on the other side of the experience, it really lit a fire under my belly to make sure that um, other, younger, other younger people don't have to suffer and struggle the way that I did. And if they are, for them to know like they're not alone in it as well. Um, the highest rates of suicide in Australia are in that 18 to 25 year old bracket and every young person we lose is like a massive devastation to our entire community because it can be prevented. So early intervention is so, so, so important to me and that's why I got into youth work so I can be a part of that. And also um, mentally ill people and disabled people are my people and I love and I care about them so much and I honestly can't imagine doing anything else with my life. So how do you manage your mental health as a disabled young person? What, um, what tips do you have for other disabled young people? So it's definitely um, a case-by-case situation. So what works for me is not going to work for everyone, but these are some little tips and tricks that I, like, have purely learned through trial by fire and some really bloody good professionals. Um, But for me, routine is, like, incredibly important, and it's not just, like, morning and night routine, but also having things in place that really give you purpose and a sense of achievement. So my work at White Ass um, is a massive protective factor for me because it gives me purpose, it gives me responsibility, I know I'm needed there, and it gives me meaning for my life. But also, like, another massive part of my routine is, like, doing the things that, like, I love, um, like, embroidery. Like, I go off for embroidery and cross-stitch because I think it's, like, finding those lovely little moments for yourself to just focus on this one little thing that you're creating and then you have this wonderful sense of achievement once you're done. And also, you know, if you are on medication, taking your meds regularly is a really good way to start. Um, But also I think like the biggest advice that I could give to anyone um, is be compassionate to yourself. I read this theory, which I really, really love. um, And it's really stuck with me. And it was something like, imagine if we gave the same compassion and love um, to ourselves that we give to our pets that we have. And I just really, really love that because I think it's super easy as a young person with mental illness, and I know this to be true because I've experienced it, um, to compare yourself with others and see them achieving, like, such awesome, brilliant things like, you know, having their dream job or completing their studies because you feel very much left behind. You feel like you're not good enough. You feel unnoticed in your struggle. I remember... I always used to say, you know, my world has completely stopped and everyone else's world just kept on turning. Um, But I think it's about, you know, kind of recognising that you're not going through the same reality that they, they are going through. Like you're managing and conquering a really, really tough facet of life in a really tough age because being a young person is really, really hard. Um, But accepting like your journey, and I'm going to steal Chloe Hayden's um, quote, but accepting your journey is different, not less, um, is takes time. It's really important. And I have found that like that for me is the hardest thing to do. 
But the reality is like everyone's going to experience some form of kind of mental health condition in their life, um, be it, you know, mental illness or an episode. But what you are doing right now as a young person is you're building like this massive wealth of knowledge and skill that is priceless. And it sucks really hard, but, you know, you're doing things that people in their 40s and their 50s really struggle to do. So, like, don't disregard that or diminish your incredible strength that you have within you. And I guess, like, the last thing, like, the last little, like, tip I will give is that um, it's really important to have a good sense of connection within your community. So finding people that bring you back to reality um, when you're not that <laughs> in tune with reality um, is really helpful for me, but also like finding people in your life that have empathy and the language to know what it's like to be in a dark space is really important, which is why I really, really love being a part of the disability community. We know that a lot of people who don't recognise chronic mental illness disability, can you speak to this? Yeah, I feel like this is a weird thing and maybe I am very much projecting my own insecurities here, but I feel like the disability sector and the mental health sector are like completely different and separate. There's no kind of like deemed overlap despite like there's so many overlapping factors. And I feel like this separation can be very much enabled by people who are able-bodied or able-mind. Um, so now me, myself, identifying as a mad, disabled person, doing so very proudly and very outwardly, um, and I'm sure this speaks to the nuances of invisible illness, um, invisible illnesses and invisible disabilities but you know I do get comments and looks like hmm you're not disabled you just have a mental illness which actually kind of has this underlying tone um that says like one day like I'll be fixed but it's the very illness that they're talking about that disables me and there's actually no cure for bipolar one and nor do I actually need fixing um and even coming into the disabled community, I felt like I shouldn't be there. And, you know, I felt like I was taking up space that I shouldn't. But I like, I remind myself when it comes to chronic mental illness, I have to think about how much I do each day to make sure I can be, and I'm doing like air quotes here, a function member of society. Like I have to actively self-regulate every single day. If I'm like too overstimulated, that can put me into mania. So I have to go somewhere calm. Um, I still have regular hospitalizations. In fact, I am calling in from a hospital like we pay bucket loads for meds and for therapy, which I know not everyone has the privilege to do or have access to. Um, and I'm limited in so many ways, but I think that's really allowed me to shine in so many other ways, which is really awesome. Um, but yeah, that's my roundabout way of saying you can have a chronic mental illness and identify as disabled, but of course, how you identify is your choice. So what has been your journey of disabled identity? It's a pretty fresh journey. Um, I think unknowingly I've always considered myself a part of the MAD community, um, but I think it all kind of like finally clicked when I did um, White Ass's Young Leaders Program as a participant. Um, and I 
the criteria to be a part of Young Leaders mentions having lived experience of mental health issues. And I'm like, that's me. Like, I want to be a leader and work with other people who are really cool with the same mindset. Um, and I, when I did it, I absolutely loved it. And like, that's where it all began. I feel that was like the genesis of my disability identity. And I think it was because I was finally treated compassionately as a disabled person rather than someone who's just, you know, going through a rough time. So to have this space to speak with other disabled young go-getters was like incredibly magical and just so awesome. And now I get to work for WIDAS, whom the vast majority of the staff identify as disabled. And I feel like I've absolutely peaked in my work. <laughs> like I love working at WIDAS because I just feel at home. I feel understood in a way that I've never felt before and never thought was possible in a workplace. And I guess now um, getting to support disabled young people like is such a dream come true and that's a really full circle moment and it makes me really happy. And now what advice do you have for other disabled young people trying to find their disabled identities? This is hard for me to answer because I feel like my journey um, into like identifying as disabled kind of just like fell into my lap out of fate but I think like the thing to do is find community there's like so many support groups and leadership groups opportunities for young disabled people in any sector where you can be amongst like other disabled young people um and even if it's like a Google search, like a lot of stuff is online and hopefully it will continue to be for accessibility where you can find that community. Because I know for me, I found being around other disabled people and sharing our frustrations, our successes, our barriers, our similarities and our differences and just the way that we came together with compassion and empathy is how I finally felt comfortable identifying as disabled. And also, like, not forcing um, the process, like, allowing it to kind of happen naturally if it does. So I was in my mid-20s when I came to that moment of identifying as disabled after a decade of living with chronic mental illness. So, yeah, if you're, if you're willing, like, go and find that community because it's absolutely waiting. Um, yeah, so if you're willing, please go and find that community because it's waiting for you and it's ready to embrace you. You have worked um, as a lived experience peer worker. How do you navigate sharing your lived experience and supporting others? A kind of job where lived experience is involved or if it's a youth worker position, you really need to think ab about um, what you feel comfortable sharing and what is completely out of bounds for you personally. So, for example, I'm very comfortable sharing my diagnosis of bipolar one with the people that I've worked with in the past and now, but some people prefer to say, hey, I'm disabled or, hey, I just, I live with mental illness. Um, and curiosity from young people about your experience is completely natural. Um, they're curious creatures, and I say that with love. Um, but you need to create that foundation of rapport and respect and you can only do that, I guess, by sharing what's comfy for you. Curiosity from young people about your experience is natural. Um, they are curious creatures, and I say that with absolute love. But you do need to 
create that foundation um, of rapport and trust and only share what is comfy for you. And that's going to keep yourself safe and it's going to keep the young person safe. And I think the most important part about lived experience work is, you know, thinking if I share this, am I actually benefiting the young person? Because that's the goal of it all. It's not about you. Like they're not your youth worker. So I think what I found what is most helpful, particularly when working with young people at high risk, is listening to them first and then gauging if it's appropriate to share. And it can be really as simple as, hey, this sounds so like hard for you right now and I can see it's so hard, but I want you to know I've been in that dark place too. And even though it doesn't feel this way, like, you know, this feeling is just temporary. And just with that, like, sentence, you're role modelling a future for these young people, which seems so out of reach, but you're also normalising the experience for them. So, yeah, boundaries are absolutely key, I think, when working um, as a lived experience youth worker. What does your day-to-day job as a peer youth worker entail? What are your day-to-day tasks? So it's hard to say what happens day to day because every day is different, which is so cool. But um, as um, Amy said, I am the facilitator of the Young Leaders Program, which um, we do four times a year. So a lot of it is prep, so logistically setting up the program. But it also um, is about speaking to the young people involved and, again, building that rapport before the workshops start talking to them about their aspirations, their goals, and also like what they like and what they don't like. And of course, their access needs and making sure we're implementing them so they can feel comfy and safe um, when um, working with us. And after the workshops, we give our graduates um, of the program six months of one-on-one support, which um, I am in charge of, and I guess I own that task. Um, So that's just about seeing where they are Um, at after the program and making sure we help them to achieve their goals, be connecting with someone in their field or they're um, finding an opportunity for them. Um, And in this part of the program, and also when we do the one-on-one part before they enter the program, that's where the kind of therapeutic relationship comes into the mix, which is what I personally enjoy the most because, you know, things do come up in these chats, be it child and young person's safety or helping them build that positive regard for themselves or normalising their experience through your own lived experience. So, yeah, every day is different and, like, sometimes you never know what to expect, um, but that kind of keeps you on your toes and I think that makes you a more flexible, adaptable and a better youth worker in general. Um, I find, I think that it is very interesting that, as a society, people often hear that because you're not the first person I've ever heard say that. I've, I hear it from almost everyone who has gone through a similar experience than that. And I feel that it is strange that a society forces people or in, in a way puts pressure on people to say something like that or to say that our lived experiences are not worthy. It's in a way making people say that their lived experiences are not worthy. They are not going through something that is worth any sort of sympathy or empathy. And, you know, the vast majority of people also would think, particularly young people or people who have 
experience in that regard we often find that to be a very gut-wrenching story and something that I would you know people would feel sorry or some sadness about you know growing up I was always told that I should never ever feel sad or depressed or anything of any sort like that because my lived experience to the vast majority of people seemed very good you know in comparison to the rest of the world I was not living in any form of poverty I was not you know, I appeared to have a good family, so I should never ever or should not have any reason to be sad or have any reason to be upset. Um, do you feel that as a society we really need to break down these structures and have people say that they deserve pity or that they people should feel upset for them? I think there's a difference between pity and sympathy and empathy, if that makes sense. So if pity, I feel has that kind of negative connotation. And this is just my opinion. When I like speak about my story, um, either, you know, at um, my work or with making noise, a fundraiser that I've um, organized, um, I say that I don't want pity because I actually want empathy. I want people to kind of want to know more about those kind of systemic issues that we are facing. Um, and educate themselves so they can have that kind of empathy and compassion. Um, Because for me, pity just seems like, um, it seems like a dirty word when it, in actuality, it really shouldn't be, right? Um, But I, yeah, I'm not illegitimizing anyone's experiences. And I think you can feel sad about someone's experiences, but in the same way, I don't feel sad about them because they've made me who I am today, if that makes sense. I do have a very different way of looking um, at it. I do feel sad for it. I think it shouldn't have happened to yourself and to an extent myself. I definitely think that, you know, we should be demanding more from society to not have to go through these sort of experiences and in a way, and I also think that, you know, people, you know, things like, you know, empathy and sympathy should also be a given. People shouldn't have to ask for it. You know, if you don't feel empathy or sympathy for somebody's hardships or things that happen in their life that, um, you know, were negative experiences, that that isn't, that's not, you're not a good person if you don't feel you know, empathy or sympathy for somebody. Yeah, no, I think... Um you're so right when you said empathy and sympathy, compassion, they should be a given. But the fact is they're not, like they're not given to us freely. Um, And I feel like the disabled community, like they will instantly, like it's just a natural kind of thing that we give each other because we know what it's like to be in those positions. Um, And I don't feel like I get that from the abled people in my life and more generally in society. And yeah, um, so well, I, was, I interpreted pity as, um, I interpreted pity as, you know, empathy and sympathy. Like people often say, I don't want pity when they really mean, I don't want you to feel any sort of sadness towards me because I don't feel that I'm worthy of it in a way and you have to people need to feel that they are worthy of sadness what you went through is valid and is you know people you know I don't think anyone 
is, you know, I would never ever look down on somebody um, or think that they are, you know, not being um, mindful if they say, I feel sorry, I'm sad you went through that because yeah, it is. And things are hard and things are upsetting and it's there is no shame or anything saying what you're going through is hard or what, what you went through was hard. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like those sentences, what you're going through is hard, what you went through is hard. That's that's like what my like youth work is like based on is like understanding that and showing that empathy. But I don't know, it's something about the word pity and it, it just maybe is for me. It just doesn't sit well with me. Um, and I think that's because I've done a lot of work. And when I say I don't want pity for my, like, I don't want anyone to pity my experience. I don't want anyone to kind of, how do I say this? I don't want anyone to kind of like infantilize me. It kind of almost has that kind of like infantilizing kind of thing. Of course, you can totally feel bad for my experiences um, and what I've had to go through and what I still go through today. Um, but, you know, be there with me. Like be, if I'm like in that kind of state where I'm feeling like, you know, really not great about myself, sit there with me, but also be there when I'm feeling good as well and like not be like, oh, but, you know, you've got you know, bipolar one, you know, and this happiness will only last for so long. Like, I don't know. I think I just want people to be, come from a place of compassion, which I just don't think that we get enough. I just think, I just get really annoyed when people sort of say, you know, I don't want people to feel sorry for me because I don't feel, because they've been conditioned to believe that they um, shouldn't be feeling sorry for each other in a way, because the people, society has always told people, particularly people who appear to come from a background that is good and well, mm. to not feel sorry for, um, um, you know, to not request any sort of empathy or sympathy and to just sort of, you know, that the, their issues are illegitimate. And they often come with an essence of fetishization for people who are less fortunate. I was always told, you know, how dare you not enjoy your life? And that is just so incredibly patronising to people who, like my parents have never, ever been out in, um, have never, ever pretty much left the Western world. They've never, ever been to anywhere in Africa or anywhere like that. They don't know what life is really like over there. They can't say something like that. And I was always told that as a child, and I find it to be incredibly patronising to not only myself, but people who are from the backgrounds they're referencing. Yeah, and I agree with that. And I think it's like, why do we have to compare one horrible thing to another horrible thing? I get really, like, tired of um, people comparing, like, like you use the example of, like, the, you know, kids in Africa kind of thing. Um, but, like, my experience is still incredibly valid. Their experience is, like, incredibly valid. Um, why do we have to compare such horrible things that have happened and just continue to happen. Yeah, I always found it very weird that people would often talk about um, that sort of thing because, firstly, there are so many issues going on just in Australia. I passed about seven or eight homeless people getting to this from Flinders Street to 
um, RMIT. And, yeah, like, you don't have to walk outside your front door to realise that there are people um, who are going through tough times and who are just as worthy as everyone else in the world. And I've never been to Africa myself, but I have a lot of friends and people who I've worked with who have had stuff to do with, um, you know, the, the area. There are people there who live in multi-million dollar houses. It's not, <laughs> not like the media would have us believe at all. Yeah, exactly. And I think even those people that us that do, you know, use that knee-jerk reaction of like, oh, the kids in Africa, um, they're not going to be even the ones that help the homeless people in the street in Australia. Right. So. They're, the ones that, they're, they're the ones that just tell people they've got to pull themselves together. Um, so what can parents and carers do more to help their disabled children? Listen to them. Yeah, absolutely. Please, please listen to them because, like, they're the number one expert on what is going on for them. So, like, as a way, like, in the same vein that we value lived experience in our work, like, value their lived experience as real, like, genuine expertise. And they, even as children, um, they know what works for them and what doesn't. So it's about helping them find a um, a communication method to, like, kind of express that. And I think something that is really important that should start Um, as children and like continue is validation of their feelings um, and not trying to fix them because that's not your job Um, and they don't need fixing I really hate the word fixing they need your support but they don't need you to fix them Um, and you don't have to fully understand what's going on for them but being there and listening and acknowledging how incredibly hard it is can be super powerful Um, and I think also if you're going to do some online research and go on the Google machine, you know, get that research from disabled people or professionals that have genuinely good reputations of working with disabled children and young people and make sure you even do your research on those professionals. Um, and also don't be afraid to get support for yourself as a parent or a carer. Because it's it can be really difficult. Like my my own mother will attest to this. Like, if you're not looking after yourself, that's going to come out in how you interact and support the disabled child or young person. Um, so yeah, I think listening, validating, and supporting them and yourself. Thank you very much, Elise, for being on our show. And Thank we hope you so to have you on again. Yes, please, please. Thank you.